You are listening to Episode 9 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share. Well, she said, nodding downwards, you're not wearing running shoes. You're either really distracted or just felt the need to tenderize your feet up here. It's an old tradition, but it's still in the handbook. Back in olden days, sailors weren't known for their academic prowess. The normal way for them to move up in rank was to demonstrate they knew how to do various tasks by doing them. Well, I'm sorry, Pip, Mr. Von Nichols said, consulting the report. You seem to have skipped Handler altogether and gone straight to Cargoman. Chapter 15 Darbot Jump 2351, November 9 Two days later, just after lunch, we had another drill. Lifeboat. But by then I was prepared. When the piggity-piggity-piggity alarm sound, I knew where I was going and that I'd be getting into the lifeboat. By the time the announcement came, This is a drill, this is a drill. Abandon ship, abandon ship. All hands to lifeboat stations. All hands to lifeboat stations. This is a drill, this is a drill. I was halfway to the gym, which was really the boat deck. I lined up with the other people assigned to Boat 4, including Diane Ardell from the environmental section, and Tabitha Rondita, whose bunk was on the other side of the partition from mine. We spent about a tick getting everybody accounted for before the boat supervisor, second mate Jillian Avro, opened the hatch and we all climbed aboard and strapped down. I had one bad moment when Ms. Avro closed the hatch, strapped down, and then punched the big red launch button, but nothing happened and I realized that the safety locks were still engaged and that she'd only registered our readiness with the bridge crew supervising the exercise. We all sat there in the dimly lit boat for about five ticks and performed the required inventories of supplies and materials listed on the plastic-covered cards in the boat. When the inventory was done, Miss Jillian thumbed the communicator button on the bulkhead and reported, Boat 4 completed. Two ticks later, the communicator chimed, and we all clambered out of the boats and lined back up on deck. When everybody was out of the boats and the hatches were secured, the announcement came, Now secure from lifeboat drill, secure from lifeboat drill. Followed by, This is the captain speaking. Very good, ladies and gentlemen. You set a new ship's record for under eight ticks to get the ship evacuated in good order. It's not something we ever want to have to do, but it's gratifying to know that we could do it if we needed to. Thank you all. Excellent work. Carry on. The run out to the jump point seemed pretty low-key after that. It was good to get back into the routine, and I didn't worry about studying for a bit. I knew I had to get back to it eventually, but the roller coaster the previous couple of weeks had left me a bit dazed. I could only imagine what Pip was feeling. Twenty-six days out of Darbot, we made the jump point. For the previous three days, Pip had been chewing on the bulkheads, waiting for that market data update from the beacon. He'd no sooner siphoned the data dump off to the portable when we had to go to transition stations and deal with the jump. I thought he was going to come out of his skin in the ten ticks before we finally secured and he could fine-tune his stores deals and double-check the data he'd used to fill up Mr. Maxwell's container. I don't think he'd been that keyed up overtaking the cargo exam, and we still didn't know for sure whether or not Mr. Maxwell was really going to fill the container. He and Cookie fretted over the stores deals endlessly, debating about how much of what to sell and what to keep for Marguerite. They'd get into the cyclical discussion where one would say something and the other would argue them around until they were both on opposite sides from their original positions and still not in agreement. Whenever they got going, I just went to the gym and ran a few laps. Eventually they hashed it out, but it took almost a week after transition to finally get agreement. Of course, as soon as they got it settled, Mr. Maxwell came down to the galley. Mr. Carstairs, he began, 
I have some new parameters for you. I assume you have the latest data from the jump point beacon. Yes, sir. I've made some minor modifications to the manifest based on the current market situation here. The problem is, of course, that our data on Marguerite is dated. A lot will have happened by the time we make Marguerite Station. Of course, Mr. Maxwell agreed wryly. Still, we must do the best we can, eh? You have a budget of ten kilocreds. Give me maximum probable return. Pip was already sliding away behind his eyes, already calculating. I sorry, he said. I just shrugged and headed for the gym. Pip caught up with me before I'd gotten out of the changing room. What do you think, Ish? Is he going to fill a container? I don't know. You're the cargo expert, I said. Tell me this. If you give him a hypothetical load, how certain are the projected outcomes? Pip shrugged. Not at all. We can project till we're blue, but the outcomes are what you get when you sell the cargo. If you don't sell, all you're doing is guessing. I nodded. That's what I thought. How often do we have empty containers? Pip thought. Most of the time there's at least one. Our cargo assignments come from home office, and they're scheduling a lot of freight. But it's hard to get a full ship all the time, or even most of the time. I nodded again. Okay, so that leaves the creds. Where would Mr. Maxwell get ten kilocreds? Pip shrugged. Dunno. Ship's discretionary fund, probably. What about the captain, I asked. What about the captain, Pip asked back. Would she have the money? Personally, Pip asked. Possibly, but she can't make that kind of deal. She's limited by captain's mass allotment. Captains have a large allotment, but a container is 600 metric tons. Pip shook his head. Now, the only way we can do this without running up against company regs is if we do it as part of the regular cargo. Okay, how does that work, I asked. You just got done saying cargo assignments come from home office and the captain can't take a container full of private trade goods. Pip nodded. Yeah, but the ship has some discretion. It's a long way to home office, and what we get from them is only the coordinated shipping orders. Those are like the large shipment of rare earths we're taking to Marguerite and the five containers of machine parts we took into Neris. The companies need lots of stuff moved, and they contract with Federated Freight to pick it up and carry it. Okay, I got that part, I said, but is it even legal for the captain to make a deal like you're working on? Pip nodded. That's what I meant by discretionary funds before, he said. Each ship has a discretion to obtain cargoes on the spot market to maximize their load. Ship carries a discretionary fund account to permit the buying and selling of cargo goods on speculation, in addition to entering into straight freight-for-hire contracts. That's usually handled by the ship's cargo division. The share amount in our pay really comes mostly from that. The more speculation we do, and of course the more it's successful, the bigger the share becomes. And if we lose on the deal, the share shrinks, I asked. Pip nodded. A share is, technically, a share of the profit. No profit, no share. The company gets the owner's share on all freight. Then the captain's share. Those are standard percentages. In our case, Federated takes a 20% share. They have various contract arrangements with captains, but typically captains get a 10% share. The rest is put into a pot, carved up, and allocated based on the number of crew and the total numbers of shares represented. Pip was good at this math, but I was falling behind rapidly. Wait, I begged. Please, give me an example. Okay, Pip said. Say after this run into Gugara, the ship has a profit of a thousand creds. The company gets twenty. The captain gets ten. The remaining seven hundred is divided up by the crew shares. So if you're a full share, you get a full allocation of however much the crew share turns out to be. Yeah, I said, but what's a crew share? We have forty crew. If all of them are full share, then we divide that seven hundred by forty, and everybody gets an extra seventeen creds or so. But we're not all full share, I said. Pip nodded. Yeah? But you can add up all the ratings and figure out how many full shares there are. In practice, all officers and some department heads are double share. You and I are quarter share. 
So you add up all the ratings for all the crew and say you get 50. Divide 700 by 50 and the share is about 12 creds. You and I at quarter share get 3, the half share people get 6, the full share people get 12, double share people get 24. Okay, okay, I got it, I got it. And this stores scheme you have with Cookie, it's not part of the normal freight arrangement. Correct. But remember that share is from profit. The galley is an expense. If we can reduce the expense, then the profit gets bigger and there's more to share, Pip explained. I nodded. I got it. How much really can you do? Are ship stores that big a part in the expense? Pip shrugged. Depreciation is probably the largest accounting item that comes out. These ships are expensive, and their operational lifetime is relatively long, but they're depreciated over only 30 stanniers, so we basically have to cover one-thirtieth of the cost of a new ship every stannier. The next largest is probably salary and benefits, followed by insurance. Ship stores are next, I think. I can tell you we spend about 500 creds a week on food. I was surprised, but I don't know why. Twenty-kilo buckets of coffee were expensive, and we used two of those every day while underway. So, how much will you be taking off the expenses, I asked. Pip shrugged. I don't know till I get a final statement, but we're still shooting for a twenty percent reduction in costs over a stanier. It's not a lot in the grand scheme of things, but it would amount to something over five kilocrads added to the shared profit for the stanier. Sounds like a lot to me, I said, laughing. Well... The share pool from the last stand was about a hundred kilocreds, so we're talking about increasing it by five percent. Nothing to sneeze at, certainly, but the real benefit is that we can get better meals out of it. How? I asked. I mean, I know Cookie explained it to Mr. Maxwell, sort of, but how does that work? Pip grinned. We buy low and sell high. I slugged him in the arm. Try again. Okay, look, he said. The most expensive foods are the fresh foods, because they have a short shelf life. Typically, we can't afford it but they really make a difference in the quality of the meals. Frozen foods are cheap. Canned and processed foods are somewhere in the middle. I nodded. Pip continued. We use the Arabasti coffee because it's readily available, relatively good coffee, and, frankly, pretty cheap. Thanks to your magic touch, the crew has gotten to like it a lot better, he teased. As a trade good, it's not much use. Everybody has it, and it's pretty consistently priced from place to place. Now, by contrast, the Sarabanda Dark we're planning on picking up in Gugara has a more volatile market price. It's limited in range, they only grow it in Gugara, and the price is subject to the fluctuations on availability. Normally, it's pretty expensive, as a result, we wouldn't buy it, despite the fact that it's generally considered a better coffee than the Arabasti. I suspect that's just snob appeal, but if we drink it, I objected, we haven't saved anything. Pip nodded. Yes, and we probably won't drink it. We're buying it to trade for things that are even more expensive. You're making my head hurt on purpose, aren't you? I accused him. He laughed. Try this. What if I offered to give you three creds for every cred in your pocket? I'd say you were crazy. And I would be, except that I know you have no creds in your pocket, so I'd be safe, replied Pip. But that's neither here nor there. What we're doing is converting creds into trade goods that are worth more as goods than the creds would be alone. We're doing that two ways. First, a bumper crop of Sarabanda Dark lets us buy a 20-cred bucket of coffee for 15 creds. Next, we go someplace where that same bucket of Sarabanda Dark would normally be worth 30 creds. Well, so far so good, but that's not much difference in value. You're right as far as it goes, but we've taken a 10-cred profit and made it 15. That's a 50% increase, and that's good. We've basically doubled our money. If we buy a 100 buckets of coffee, it costs a kilocred and a half. We take what would be normally a kilocred profit and turn it into one and a half kilocreds. 
That gives us back the original kilocred and a half, the amount we paid for the hundred buckets of coffee to begin with, along with an additional kilocred and a half as profit. So now we can set aside some of that profit to buy something like fresh fruit for pies, or something else that would help Cookie make more interesting menus, using ingredients that our store's budget wouldn't allow. Even if we don't do anything except put the money back into the store's budget, we've taken idle creds and make them work for the ship. By buying foodstuffs, we're basically keeping our mission safe, but trading in the margins. Why isn't everybody doing this, I asked. Oh, they're all trying to. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It works for us because the incremental cost of transaction is basically nothing. We're going to Margaree anyway. We have the surplus capacity to carry the goods we need to trade, and a small margin of creds to invest. What we need to do is build up our stock of trade goods so that wherever we go, we have something extra that's worth more to the people there than it is to us. Almost everybody has something they don't want that we can buy cheap. In Gugara this trip, it's Sarabanda Dark Coffee. Next time it might be beefalo steaks. Sarabanda Dark should be worth more in Marguerite, but not as much as it would be in St. Cloud, because St. Cloud is further away. We need to sell some of it in Marguerite Station and use that extra money to buy something that's cheap in Marguerite, but more expensive in St. Cloud. Marguerite Station has no planetary system, I objected. They import all their food. Actually, said Pip, that's a commonly held belief, but it's not true. What? They have planets, I asked? Well, yes, they have two gas giants, but that's not what I meant. They do not import all their food. Most, but not all. They do grow some. What? Pip just smiled. Wait and see, Ishmael, old son. Wait and see. Chapter 16. Gugara Orbital. 2351, December 9th. I finally got ashore in Gugara Orbital. After Pip's experience on Sarbat, the more experienced crew kind of adopted us. The problem was that Pip and I couldn't leave the ship at the same time. We were the only two mess crew, so we were, by definition, in alternating watch sections, and one of us had to be aboard at all times. It seemed a bit silly to me. We never did anything after the evening meal was cleaned up, but those were the rules. The upside was that I got to know some of the other crew members better. Pip and I flipped a coin for first night liberty. I suspect that Pip threw the call so I could go. I think he felt guilty because I'd missed Sarbat entirely when he got mugged on that first night. You go, he said. Have a good time. I'll poke about the station net from here and see if I can find a deal we can go in on, okay? But where's good, I asked. You know, Gugara, give me some recommendations. We were sitting in the mess deck at the time, and before I knew it we were surrounded by people who were all talking at once. Brillo Smith took me by the arm and drew me out of the throng. They're all crazy. Half of them will be broke by the time we leave. What do you want to do, she asked. I shrugged. I have no idea. This is the first time I've been out of Nera since I was a toddler. I don't remember much about being out of the system. Come to think of it, it's been almost ninety days since I've been off the ship. Can that be right? I started counting on my fingers. I came aboard three days before we left Neris, and we were forty-five days to Sarbot, and four days in Sarbot, and forty-four days to here. I blinked in surprise. Oh, my stars and garters, Ishmael Brillo exclaimed. "'And you're still sane?' I grinned. "'Well, that's a matter for debate, but I am shocked. "'It seems like yesterday, sort of. "'I can't really remember a time when I wasn't here, "'other than some fuzzy kind of idea. "'I used to live somewhere else.' "'Brillo smiled. "'Wait till you've been doing this for ten staniers,' she said. "'You really won't remember. "'You didn't get to go ashore at all at Sarbot, did you?' "'I shook my head. "'I was just changing into my civvies when the Darbadis brought Pip back.' 
What were you going to do there? I blushed. Eat, I mumbled. Eat, she asked. You work in the galley and you wanted to get off the ship to eat? I shrugged. Cookie is amazing. He's an artist in the galley, but once in a while I think I'd like to eat somebody else's cooking. Brillo giggled. Tell you what, in honor of your earning your engineering half rating, let me take you out to dinner. A few of us are planning on going to a nice place we know up on level six. They have great steaks and good beer. It'd be a good chance for you to get out and stretch your legs a bit. My treat for dinner. You're on your own after that, she grinned. Okay, I agreed. Sounds fun. Meet me at the quarterdeck, 1700 ship time. It's only a stand from now, so go put on some party clothes. The throng was still gathered around the table, talking about what they do on station, and didn't seem to notice that I wasn't even there anymore. I grinned. These people were nuts. And I'm one of them, I told myself. It didn't take me that long to get ready to go. My civvy seemed oddly out of place on the ship, but my feet remembered my good boots, and it sure felt good to put them back on after so long in the ship boots. I made my way to the quarter-deck and met up with Brillo and two of her people, Diane Ardell and Francis Gardner. Diane was a gamine, with cropped red hair, a pixie face, and a wicked grin. Francis Gardner was a string-bean of a guy with long, narrow hands and muddy brown hair. I knew them, of course, from the mess line, but other than seeing them occasionally in the gym, I'd never spent much time with them. We checked out with the duty officer and left the ship. When I stepped out of the lock, I felt a momentary sense of disorientation. It looked just like Neris. I had the odd sense that somebody was playing some kind of elaborate trick on me. I stopped as I stepped to the station deck plates and gazed around. Brilla was in the lead, and she didn't realize I'd stopped. Diane and Francis stopped, one on either side of me, and just stood there with me for a tick. Brillo noticed and turned to look back at us. "'Are you coming, or are you just going to stand there rubbernecking all night? "'I'm hungry,' she shouted good-naturedly. "'Diane shouted back. "'Keep your panties on. We'll be there when we're ready,' she said with a laugh. "'Francis, who really was almost as tall as Brillo, leaned down and asked quietly, "'You okay-ish?' "'I looked around and nodded. "'The air was cold and sharp, and I smelled the hot hydraulics from the station side of the lock "'and some other undefinable station smell. "'It was kind of a cross between—' iodine and mint. Not unpleasant, but not the Lois's smell. I shook myself and started forward again. After three months in the Lois's cramped passageways and spaces, the orbital seemed airy and spacious. Brilla waited for us to catch up. A bit odd, Ishmael? she asked. Yeah, I said, you know, for a tick, I thought it was a trick. I stepped out and the dock looked just like Neris. They all laughed, Diane said. It's the law. The docks on all the orbitals are standardized, from the size of the docks to the spacing of the locks to the height of the ceiling. It's the same everywhere, right down to the padding on the deck and the colors of the walls. Oh, that explains it, then. For all intents and purposes, it is Neris. I took a deep breath and let it out loudly. Thank the gods, I thought I was going mad. We all laughed, and Brillo led us up through the station to level six, and into a restaurant named Beef and Brew. The manager, a portly man, with a florid complexion, welcomed us, calling Brillo by name. Brillo, my dear, always good to see you again. You've made the loop, finally. She nodded, first shaking one of his big hands in both of hers, and then hugging him warmly with a firm kiss on each cheek. Maurice, you old charmer, she teased. You're only glad to see us because we spend so much money here. You wound me, my dear, he said with mock horror, and held a hand dramatically to his breast, as if truly wounded. The money isn't the only reason. Diane stepped up and said, "'No, just the most important. "'Good evening, Maurice,' she smiled as she too greeted him with a handshake and a hug. Francis smiled and shook his hand, but didn't offer to hug. 
Good to see you again, Maurice. Brillo made the introductions. Maurice, this is Ishmael Wang. He's a new crew member who joined us in Nerys. This is the first time he's been off the ship in over ninety days, so you must treat him well. He's feeling a bit exposed. Maurice beamed at me, and I felt very welcomed in a way that I couldn't remember ever experiencing. Welcome, Mr. Wang. I'm delighted that you've chosen my humble establishment to break your long incarceration. Thank you, Maurice, I said. I'm looking forward to a meal where somebody waits on me for a change. Brillo explained. Ishmael works in the galley on the Lois. He's been taking care of us for the last three months. Ah, you work with Cookie, Maurice explained. How is he? And why has he not come with you tonight? He's fine, I told him. His duties kept him aboard tonight, I'm afraid. Well, let's not stand on ceremony here. Come this way, my old and new friends. I have a table which you should find acceptable. He scooped up a handful of menus and led us into the dimness of the restaurant. I sighed happily as we settled at a large table with real chairs that slid on the floor. Maurice brought us a large pitcher of beer without asking, and collected orders with joyous abandon. I had to admire his skill when the waitstaff delivered all the meals perfectly to the correct person. The beefalo steak was superb, and the greens were lovely and crunchy. The baked potato was perfect, and dressed with only a discreet dab of what looked and tasted like real butter. For the first time since Nerys Company security had showed up at my door that day, I felt myself begin to unwind. Dinner was wonderful. I knew Brillo was smart and funny. She really had helped me with that tour of the environmental section. Diane and Francis were likewise wonderful dinner companions. Being a professor's kid had two effects on me. First, I was surrounded by people who tend to lord it over anybody who didn't have at least two educational degrees and four decades of experience. Second, being surrounded by a lot of really smart people, and living with a literature professor, gave me a vocabulary and an appreciation for some of the larger ideas of human existence, unlike many of my peers. The upshot of this was that I appreciated dinner in a way that I seldom had experienced before. I felt like a grown-up. We lounged over dinner for at least three stands. Maurice occasionally stopped by the table to make sure everything was satisfactory, but he never once made us feel unwelcome or that, having finished dinner, we should move on. Finally, after we'd finished off our coffee and a second round of desserts, we settled up and sauntered out onto level six. The four of us window-shopped and chatted, sharing stories of life planet-side, shipboard, and everything in between. Brillo, it turned out, had a master's degree in environmental sciences, while Francis had a doctorate in astrophysics. Diane had barely squeaked through secondary school, was just good with algae. They all three shared a passion for clean air and fresh water, and I discovered that I was coming to think of them as my friends. After a while, we split up. Brillo and I needed to get back to the ship, but Diane had other ideas. She stepped up and gave me a hug. Good night, Ish. Francis and I are going up to level seven and dance the night away. I hugged her back and shook Francis's hand. Thanks for letting me tag along, guys. I had a great time. Funny how you can live so close together but not really cross paths. They all chuckled knowingly. Happens all the time, Francis said. Brillo and I set out in one direction, while Diane and Francis headed the opposite way. We meandered from level to level, finally reaching the docks again. The cold, sharp air of the docks seemed refreshing. The smells of ship and machinery were everywhere. Eventually we reached the Lois again, walking up to the lock with a visual image being overlaid in my head with the lock at Nerys Orbital. I was suddenly smitten with a sense of coming home that I'd only previously associated with returning to the flat I'd shared so long with my mother in faculty housing. I sighed contentedly. Brillo smiled. You seem pleased, she commented. I nodded. Thank you for dinner. It was excellent, and it felt really good to get off the ship. 
You're welcome, Ish. It was my pleasure. Next time, you buy, she teased. We stepped through the lock and checked in with the officer of the watch. I was shocked to see that it was almost midnight. We split up then, each headed for our burrs. When I got to mine, Pip was still awake, reading something on his tablet. Hi there, he said. How was dinner? Great. Brillo took us to the beef and brew and I met the owner. Great meal. Lot of fun. I stripped out of my civvies and hung them in my locker, swapping them for a ship tea and boxers. I clambered into my bunk and was asleep before I knew I was laying down. Thanks for listening to Episode 9 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from the Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor, recorded by James Curran, available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandus.com slash golden. <laughs>